Hi, my name is Saul, and this is the Story of London podcast. On our journey so far, we have traversed the long, long road of time, from the ancient days of prehistory up to roughly the 820s of the Common Era. And we did all of this in only six episodes. You would no doubt feel somewhat justified into thinking at this rate, we'll reach the modern age by chapter 20, so great is our velocity through history. Fear not, while these early chapters may be displaying alarming alacrity, ahead lies a multitude of chapters wherein the affairs of London within a single year can take up an entire podcast. And this gradual deceleration of time begins to commence with this chapter and the coming of the Viking Age. Now, I must at this point interject into the narrative with a confession. I've spent a long time researching, studying and writing about history, all types of history from all ages, and as such, I can occasionally fall into bad habits, and I've been doing so during this podcast. You see, I keep referring to early Saxon London as Ludenwick, when the correct pronunciation is Londonwick. So I will cease and desist this mispronunciation, and I crave the indulgence of my listeners as I am, despite what I insist upon telling myself, merely mortal. You will discover as this series continues, I also have an OCD-based compulsion to be as accurate as possible in what I write, and as such, you can be assured that if I do make any mistakes, I will confess them without shame or guilt, and indeed, with an earnest glee as I go along, that can be quite disconcerting. Anyway, that's quite enough of talking about myself. I have some housekeeping notices I need to make, but I will save them until the end. Let's get back to our Anglo-Saxons and Vikings, shall we? And before we even begin to talk about the Vikings... We need to talk about the situation that was going on before they even arrive in our tale. So, here is the story of London, Chapter 7. Odin's Fashionistas, Part 1. The Decline of Mercia Begins. See if you can, in your mind's eye then, picture Londonwick between the years 820 and 835. It is a rich and thriving trade port, the principal marketplace of the Kingdom of Mercia, and has been for about 170 years on and off. Its location on the bend in the River Thames is centred on the area we today call The Strand, It sees goods and expensive items arriving from as far away as the great Abbasid Caliphate, while its traders also travel across the seas. It's a sophisticated little powerhouse, not just of trade, but of customs checks, duties, taxations, shipbuilding, and all the systems of an advanced mercantile operation. 
The Mercian kings had but a generation before tried to have London replace Canterbury as the centre of Christian faith in England, an attempt that ultimately failed. And the future would have seemed secure. And yet, within a single generation, its entire social order would be turned upside down. And the cause, well, the causes were multiple, but principally, by every possible measure, Mercia began a process of sudden decline. Now, to cut a very convoluted and very long story short by presenting a nice illustrative summary, in the 64 years between 757 and 821, Mercia had just two rulers, Offa and Senwulf, although technically there's a five-month period where a guy called Egfrith was in charge, but we don't count him. But in the 29 years between 821 and 850, Mercia had nine rulers. The political class was fragmenting, which was bad, and there seems to be a jostling for power between competing dynasties as well as utterly new people turning up to take power on occasion. This was bad by itself. But then to make matters worse for Mercia, it was around now that the Kingdom of Wessex started getting its act together and growing as a political force in the south of England. And the reason for this, a guy called Egbert of Wessex. Now there was a third reason why Mercia was going to go into steep decline, but I'll get to them in a moment. For now we just need to linger on a series of wars between Mercia and Wessex in the 820s. As that decade dawned, Mercia was still the dominant geopolitical state of the region, whose power and influence controlled almost the entire south of England. Egbert, the king of the West Saxons, however, was independent of Mercia, and had spent decades reorganising Wessex and building up his power base there, using his army to expand out and beat the Cornish into submission, for example, and biding his time. Finally, seeing an opportunity with Mercia seemingly in political turmoil, in 826 he decides to go to war with his northern neighbour. Now, keep in mind that Saxon armies at the time were numbered only in the hundreds. These were made up of war bands who were professional soldiery, small in number but dedicated purely towards the art of violence, so they were exceptionally talented at fighting. And as such, when one of them died or was seriously injured, they were not quickly or easily replaced. Both the West Saxons and Mercia had ferocious reputations, with Mercia especially being arguably the most feared fighting force, with their warbands having a stunning reputation since the time of King Pender the Strong centuries earlier. In 826 then, Egbert's Wessex decided to take on Mercia, and they won a single decisive battle wherein both sides depleted the number of trained warriors at their disposal, and effectively Wessex was able to take over the entire south of England, including the territories of Sussex and Essex. These they then placed under the dominion of a newly reorganised sub-kingdom of Kent, now designated a cadet state 
to Wessex itself. London was still under Mercian control, even with the surrounding Essex nominally under Kent's dominion, and obviously the residents of London would be just coming to terms with this when more bad news reached them. Things in Mercia had just gotten way worse. After that defeat against the forces of Wessex in 826, the Mercian king saw the residents of the usually compliant kingdom of East Anglia decide that this weaker version of Mercia meant that they could throw off the shackles of Mercian control and declare independence. Now, for reasons perhaps more motivated by economics and pride, the king of Mercia made a desperate attack into the kingdom of East Anglia. But he was killed, and his army was depleted even more. His son then took the throne, but a year later he launched a revenge attack into East Anglia. But he was also killed, and more of his army was depleted. And then a new king called Wiglaf seized the throne, and he tried to stabilise Mercia, effectively allowing East Anglia to go its own way. And yet, power is subject to evolutionary forces, and weakness is mercilessly set upon. In 829, Egbert of Wessex realised he had a bespoke opportunity, with Mercia both politically destabilised and with its fighting forces now much depleted after three large defeats. And as such, he launched a blitzkrieg-like attack upon Mercia, who seemed to have capitulated without a fight and whose king fled into exile. Wessex seized political control of the Midland Kingdom and also over Ludenwick. The entire status quo of London geopolitically had been upended within less than five years. Was this the end of an era? No, not really. You see, Egbert, for reasons that defy any and all logic, suddenly got it into his head that he was going to march his forces through Mercia before he'd even cemented his rule there and attack the northern kingdom of Northumbria. And while the records say he won a big battle and was now the ruler of everywhere, skeptics argue that all he did was utterly overextend himself in a moment of total vainglorious folly. And as such, only a year after he had conquered Mercia in 830, Wigluff, that Mercian king, returned with a new body of warriors and Wessex's control over Mercia appears to collapse like a wet souffle. Wigluff was now ruler of Londonwick again, as well as much of the surrounding territory of Essex, and apparently he made its king one of his ministers, and this serious geopolitical crisis seems to have been ended. London was back to normal, yes? Again, no. And it is now we must speculate a little, as there appears to be many things happening in and around London that require us to pause. Well, the big events like kings invading each other's territory is always easier to track in this era. 
What is missing is the minute of day-to-day -day living, and also, a far greater interest to myself, the socio-economic accounts of the time. I'm the kind of historian who is drawn to things like monetary policy and logistical necessity, who adores to see the function of backroom clerks and scribes. It's in studying these people we gain a better grasp of human history, I feel. Alas, this era contains no such testimony of these true heirs of the city. However, reading between the lines and juggling the opinions of a multitude of very excellent historians, we can see that this minor war had dramatic implications for the trade town of Londonwick. The first thing we notice immediately after Wigloff regains power is that the mint in London seems to have stopped working. Indeed, looking a bit deeper, it seems that the Mercian kings were having a bit of an ongoing problem with coin making. The, the glory days of Offa's reign were apparently long gone. When Wiglaf succeeded to the Mercian throne in 827, after the previous two kings had been killed trying to reclaim back East Anglia, we can see what may have motivated to go on such desperate campaigns by the fact that East Anglia had its own royal mint, and with their independence, this was no longer available to the kings of Mercia. That meant our new king of Mercia, Wigloff, was forced to depend solely upon the mint in London. Only evidence suggests that the previous kings of Mercia had mothballed that mint in London a few years previous, so Wigloff had to reopen the mint there to produce the coins of his realm. Only a couple of years later then, Egbert of Wessex took Mercia. And he had the mint in London specifically produce a new series of coins, upon which he claimed the title of Rex M, which stood for Rex Mercicorum, or King of Mercia. And then the coins also advertised that he was using the London Mint to make them. So he's not only claiming the title of King of Mercia, he's doing so in Mercia's main mint. However, two years after that, Wigloff is back. But the London Mint does not reopen. Did Wessex take the moneyer who made the coins there with them? Maybe. We know Wigloff, throughout his reign, only ever issued a single batch of coins throughout his entire time in charge. They were produced without a portrait on them, and they were struck by a moneyer called Redmond, and he had worked for Egbert back in 829 and 830, which suggests something's going on behind the scenes. Did Wigloff, King of Mercia, only regain his throne by swearing allegiance to Eckbert. This has been claimed by later sources, but I don't think so. Why? Well, Eckbert graciously granting Mercia to a puppet ruler who accepted him as his overlord? The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which was all pro-Royal House of Wessex, would have made a huge song and dance about that. And it doesn't at all. But we don't know, however. 
We don't know why King Wigluff didn't produce any coins beyond that single issue, which was made by a guy who used to work for Wessex. My opinion, just looking at it all, and it's just speculation, is that I honestly believe that Wigluff did regain the throne of Mercia. And this annoyed the King of Wessex. And he responded by removing the coin makers, the moneyers, from London to make sure that the West Saxon controlled mints at Rochester and Canterbury became the only games in town outside of the mint up in East Anglia. That he left London without anyone able to produce coins, kind of like a middle finger to Wigluff. But I admit it's just speculation, but just think about it. This was a man who was so proud of the fact that he'd just beaten Mercia. He created a special set of coins to basically celebrate he was now Lord of London. I don't think he would have given up London voluntarily. But pro-Wessex sources claim Eckbert was now the sixth Brechtwalder, the High King of England, so the issue is open to debate. On top of all this, however, we must add to this that we see that during the 820s and the 830s, there seems to be an overall decline in the amount of manufacturing done by specialists in Londonwick, suggesting a period of overall economic difficulty. And we know that over in the Frankish kingdoms, we have reports of decreased trade and manufacturing also taking place. Was there some kind of recession happening? Maybe. And yet, one cannot ignore the reality of the fact that while all this was happening, something else was going on. That during the 830s, both Mercia and Wessex and the residents of Londonwick had a bigger problem. You see, it's about now, many historians would say, the Vikings had started to show up. The problem is, no. The Vikings didn't just show up in the 830s. They'd been around for decades. Everyone in London knew these guys. And they got on with them. All that happened in the 830s is that these people started to behave differently. That previous to the 830s, these so-called Vikings were actually famous for their stylish clothing and brilliant hair care routines. And no, I'm not being frivolous. Because while we know with the benefit of hindsight and time that the first actual Viking attack upon London is just about to take place. This was not apparent or even obvious to the residents of London in the late 820s. In fact, I'm going to suggest that Scandinavians, the so-called Vikings, had been known to the residents of London since the 780s and were customers of London and valued customers over those 50 years. That the residents of London did not approach the era of Scandinavian carnage that was about to be unleashed upon Britain from one of ignorance. That they were surprised as these Norsemen turned up from nowhere to attack. Rather, the residents of trade towns like Londonwick had good reason to suspect that the Scandinavians would never attack them. But... 
to justify that argument, I need to get into some serious detail about the Vikings and the initial experience London had with the Vikings. And that, I worked out, requires its own episode. When I originally wrote the script to this part, I, it began running to nearly an hour in length, so I've broken up into two parts. Part one is this one, and the longer part will be released tomorrow, where I will, I hope, justify my claims to any listener's satisfaction. Even if it will annoy and confound all of those who have it in their head that the Vikings all had awesome makeup worthy of the finest Scandinavian death metal bands and sang songs to Odin as they waged war upon the world. Ah, sorry, not sorry. But that comes in tomorrow's episode. For now, I'm just going to use this remaining time to make a few housekeeping notices, which I'm making now as the podcast seems to be getting into a swing and the initial stumbling steps taken by myself have now been made. Firstly, thank you to all of those who have decided to follow this podcast. You few, you special few, I am deeply humbled and honoured that you have done so. I began this podcast indeed the origin of my desire to tell the story of, of London itself was entirely born out of a strange need to reflect and tell the tale of this city and I honestly never thought anyone would be willing to join me on this journey so genuinely thank you secondly a, a few people have been sending me questions and I'm not ignoring these I intend to work them into future episodes of the podcast, even if it does occasionally mean going back over things. Sometimes recaps could be good, especially given how intense and complicated things are going to become. Thirdly, alongside these podcasts, I do post up rough copies of the scripts, along with pretty pictures to illustrate the story for people on social media. If you know, you know. For those who don't know, I will over the next few episodes talk about where the support materials to the podcast can be found and how you can access it, and it's free for anybody who just, well, likes the podcast. And then finally, an explanation. My lifestyle is currently itinerant, as I'm travelling for lots of various reasons, and I make up the scripts and do my research as I travel. And as such, I don't always have the same recording location when I come to actually making the episodes. This explains why there isn't a consistency in sound between the episodes. I, I do apologise for this and hope to start using a more regular location soon. Anyway, enough of this. That's it for episode 7, and coming very soon, like within the next 24 hours, chapter 8 of the podcast. Odin's Fashionistas Part 2 The Dirty Secret of the Early Vikings. Mm -hmm.